This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Growing up in communist China, Lily Tang Williams says Chairman Mao's central party controlled everything. People's jobs, their food, even the ideas they expressed. Tang Williams immigrated to the United States decades ago to escape all that. And she's never lost the belief that smaller government is always better. It's a creed she now preaches as a U.S. Senate candidate for the Libertarian Party in Colorado. This month, that party hit a big milestone. Its members now make up just over 1% of registered Colorado voters, and that means Tang Williams will participate in the first Senate debate in Grand Junction Saturday. And uh, Lily, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I understand that you got your first introduction to American government while you were in college in China. You met an American exchange student. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I just remember his name is George from East Coast. And uh, we met at the party, and he invited me to go to his dorm. You know, foreign student dorm were watched by the security guards. Like, uh, so I had to slick in if I want to see him multiple times. Otherwise, you have to sign registration papers, go to visit him. He showed me a pocket constitution. He read to me. My English wasn't good enough, but he read to me very slowly about uh, the first paragraph of the um, Declaration of Independence. Yeah. All men are created equal. Now we have this natural rights given to us by our creator, not by our government. That was just uh, like a magic, sweet, most beautiful words I have ever heard. So my nipples came on. like, a, wow, I would love to live in this country. And even meeting with this exchange student, uh, let alone reading the U.S. Constitution with him, might have put you in some jeopardy at that point. Well, yes, and uh, but I did not want my government to know what I was doing. That's why I had to slick around behind this lady who was watching the foreign student dormitory. And so nobody knew. I went back there many times to talk to him about America, about the Constitution. That's why I came to this country. I would have a guaranteed rights. Let's turn to the philosophy of your party, the Libertarian Party. We have posted a link to the party platform at cprnews.org. It calls for repealing, quote, all federal programs and services not required under the U.S. Constitution, that document you read back in China. Do you agree with that idea of eliminating all of those programs, all of those services not specifically mentioned in the document? Well, ideally, that uh, that's the best libertarian society I could imagine to live in. Its government is very small, limited by the Constitution, and people voluntarily help their communities, private charities, and take care of their own people. That would be the best way. Nobody wants to be forced by a gun, by government, to say you got to do this. But when you believe in a cause, you put your strengths, your resources together to help each other, I thought that would be the best way, and you will feel so good and so rewarding from the experience instead of being forced. This would do away with, gosh, the entire federal safety net. You're talking Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps. I guess you're saying the idea is that the private sector is the safety net, or would you leave it up to states to perhaps create? Well, I think uh, I do believe minimum safety net for people, but is that the safety net have to be monopolized by only the provider, which is called the government? And how did Americans survive before the big federal government involved in all their sectors? I learned in American history, people were independent, self-responsible, but also working very hard to better their lives. They came from the other 
you know, parts of the world, and they build better life for themselves here. Isn't that a rather idealized version of the past? In other words, Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare were created to better people's lives, and there wasn't much of a safety net before you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Well, I agree there. Those programs were created with good intentions, but the good intentions do not create desirable outcome. I would think that uh, look at our government today, what is causing our country so broke today with almost $20 trillion in debt, and our kids' grandchildren are going to pay for that. So I will advocate, look at this program to say where we could be reformed to make it more efficient or to replace with something like, for example, if you're under 30, maybe you could opt out the program, save on your own. Because I do trust our individual citizens are smart enough to take care of themselves and, and actually build a safe net themselves. Help me understand that if you're under 30, what would you do? They could opt out, like, for example, Social Security, mm. because our Social Security is totally broke. The lockbox does, does not exist. Government spend all the money you put in. So it's the your generation now paying for the people who are retired on Social Security income today. So it's like almost like some kind of uh, uh, an investment scam, that, like Murdoch. The money is not there. It's the new investor coming to pay for the old investors on their returns and their income. But it's just not going to last because by the time I retire, maybe money is gone. To call Social Security broke entirely is, I think, a little bit of a, of a, bro- a broad brush, an inaccurate brush. I mean, it's solvent through, uh, I can't remember exactly what the year is, but it's not as if people aren't getting Social Security checks today. Well, I think that uh, um, according to the prediction, though, the money will be gone, maybe like around the 2030 or something. So what I'm going to do to fix it? So that's something that I think American people should put their brain together to talk about this. But to deny the problem is not going to work. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and this week we're meeting some of the minor party candidates for the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. Yesterday we met the Green Party candidate, Arnman Coney, and uh, I'm now speaking with the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado. That's Lily Tang-Williams. I want to talk about the environment and climate change with you. On your website, there's a link at cprnews.org. You write, I am for market solutions to make sure that our environment remains clean and beautiful. One could argue that the market often encourages the opposite behavior uh, and that the, the free market has led to a degradation of the environment. Can you give me an example of a market solution that you'd encourage as a way of protecting the environment? Well, I can tell you my personal experience. When you have a super big government like in China, look how horrible our environment is. People have to wear masks during the winter. Our biggest polluter is the government in China because they have immunity. You cannot sue them. They just build like this 45 miles away, a chemical plant in my hometown. And people were getting sick, wear masks, and they protested. They were crushed, silenced. So I think in this country, if you look at lots of pollutions, of course, polluters need to be held accountable. Doesn't matter. It's public, government, or private. That's also kind of part of validated rule for government to protect us from the, those polluters. But what is the best way to do it, though? I think that uh, um, by giving government more power, more regulation, you know, instead of demand and market, and, and uh, I love this beautiful environment. I came to this country, I was impressed. My first impression, this is a beautiful country. I love its beauty and clean environment, and people are very aware to how to take care of it at grassroots level. And so if there's a spill, if someone is uh, imprudent with the environment, who does the enforcement? 
Well, that's where government rule and regulation can play. If you're a private polluter, then you pollute public water and air, then you should be held accountable. Now, but how, how would that work if you eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency? Well, that I think that uh, it will um, EPA still have some role to play, mm. but it will may, maybe cut down its size and scope of power. And right now, EPA, I think, uh, is doing some sometimes just too much. And overreach is making people lose their jobs. We can do both. I think there's a balanced approach. You can protect environment and hold the people who polluters accountable, but at the same time, get our country rich and prosperous. So we have the technology, we have the wealth to deal with any problems we come up with. Do you believe that climate change is occurring in part because of, of human factors? You know what? I keep telling people I'm not best educated on this subject. I'm not convinced either way. But uh, the, my principle is that it uh, doesn't matter if it's global warming or global cooling. If we become more rich and prosperous, we can have the technology, know-how, skills, and wealth to deal with it. For example, if it's global warming, everybody has air conditioning. If it's global cooling, everybody has heating. Would that be wonderful? Because I live through China. We're so poor. We did not have any of those. We even did not have electricity in the countryside when I was growing up. So what you're saying is that the answer to climate change is air conditioning. No, it's more wealth creation, more prosperity for the country. So we have more means, more wealth to deal with it. Uh, instead, of, instead of now we have this, uh, you know, global government is actually talking about this, and and uh, there are limited people's uh, uh, options sometimes in terms of their jobs, their careers, and and even business creations are limited. So I would like to say that we have a smart, balanced approach on this issue. If there are more air conditioning units running because of a more prosperous country, uh, would you want the power source to be a renewable energy? Well, that's where free market comes play. We can actually use our creativity to explore, develop all sorts of energy sources. And depends on price and demand and quality. Let market work. I think if there's incentive for people to go solar, to do something more efficient, better quality, and less pollution, why not to do it? It'd be great. Everybody would love to use that too because everybody cares about environment. But it's just when you push it down from the central government, even world government, like UN or something, I, I, I think that's just not going to work because I went through all that before. Do you have any examples um, where government has played a positive role in your life? And I think I experienced that a lot in this country, that I see government role is to protect life, liberty, property, and to preserve happiness, right? And national defense, right? And that's legitimate role of government. That's how I see it. It's really roles restricted and by the constitution. If government is that small and limited, we will have a huge economical growth. And we have people voluntarily to give to charity to help each other out because we will have lower taxes and lots of people have jobs, good careers, and they're willing to give more to help each other in the communities. We're speaking with the libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado. That's Lily Tang Williams. On your website, you write at length about your position on abortion. And you say that, quote, in my personal moral beliefs, I am pro-life. But you also believe abortion should be legal in the early months of a pregnancy. Why? Well, I was raised as Buddhist um, life. 
to us is more than just human beings. Bugs on the floor and animals. I, my grandma always tell me, "Don't kill that bug when you step on it." So personally, I feel like life should be respected. Doesn't matter all forms of life, but legally, I like to woman to make that decision with her loved ones, with doctor, because when you force one human being to take care of another human being, it's still slavery. A life without choice to me is slavery, and sometimes people value liberty more than life itself because that's why we fight, right? We fight for freedom and die for for freedom. I would like to see grassroots promote life culture to go help those women in need, offer financial assistance, adoption, counseling, education, but by simply resort to government force to ban it. I just honestly cannot support that because I like to see women be free individual to make their choices. You don't know what their circumstance can be. I'd like to ask you about a bit of news that's come out this morning. The libertarian presidential candidate was asked about Aleppo and did not know what Aleppo was. Are you aware of what happened? Actually, I, I'm. I just found that this morning it's like a, and you can educate me. You know, I don't know either. What is it? What Aleppo is? Yes. Uh, in Syria? Do, do you know that that's sort of the epicenter of the conflict? Yeah, right. That's the Middle East conflict. But how do you explain this word? How do you? Well, it's the name of a place. Okay, just the name of a place. No. I'm still learning a lot about foreign policies, even though the libertarian point of view on foreign policy is non-interventionism, but the, second, but the strongest defense force second to long, it's really peace through strength. And uh, I, I think that I don't know everything. I'm not a career politician. I have never, you, you know, take a dime from government. Um, but uh, our policy on foreign um, intervention stuff is just that uh, Americans should really do national defense. That's the federal government role. But uh, continue to do nation building, global engineering, and taxpayers' dollars, you know, wasted on foreign wars that are not necessary, not declared by Congress. It, it just, you know, has so many bad consequences. We don't feel safer. But does isolationism leave a vacuum that is readily filled by, to bring this full circle, China? Well, it's not isolationist, though. Libertarians are nothing but isolationist. It's, it's misperception. We are for free trade and peace and uh, relationship, friendship. We also you're for peace. What right, a, it's right. very bold. A bold yes, statement. right. I'm for peace because every life right right is important to me, and also including foreign people and the for, you know children. But what can we do more? Cultural exchange, trade, commerce, and also like when I was growing up in China, because the open door policy, free trade. I got to listen to John Denver songs. That just made me more want to come to the United States. That was just so lovely. And why can't we do that with Middle East countries? American music, products, services, and the life's friendship. Maybe they will start to like us instead of hate us, want to bomb us here. John Denver is Diplomacy. Lily, thanks for being with us. Thank you to find me. That's Lily Tang-Williams, the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate. Yesterday, as I said, we talked with the Green Party candidate, Arnman Coney. You can hear that conversation at cprnews.org. We've also invited Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett and his Republican opponent, Daryl Glenn, to join us. And we hope to bring you those conversations in coming weeks. Up next, teaching the 9-11 attacks as history to kids who weren't alive when they happened. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
Sunday marks the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the type of event so shocking you remember where you were when it happened. Unless you weren't around at all, of course. Grade school kids are either too young to recall or weren't alive then. We've learned there are no statewide standards or guidelines on how to teach about the attacks of 9-11, and that left Jake Cousins and Laura Inojos to create their own curricula. Cousins teaches 8th grade at Strive Prep, a charter school in Denver, and Inojos is a 6th grade teacher at Ralston Elementary in Golden. They spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jake, what are your first memories of September 11, 2001? So I was a freshman in high school. It wasn't until my second period class, two teachers of mine that are that I'm still in touch with and are still heroes of mine to this day, had basically like grabbed a rundown school issue TV with the bunny ears and everything else and, mm-hmm. and plopped it on a chair. And we spent the whole three hours of that class kind of watching footage as it, it came in. And that moment was profound um, in my life, given the it was the first time I'd seen teachers and, and maybe adults, period, be that vulnerable and that willing to admit what they didn't know and made me feel safe. Did that become a catalyst for you to become a teacher because of that rawness that you saw that day? Yeah, I think it – I didn't know it at the time, but I, I do think that was a day that kind of shaped my trajectory towards education. Laura, what do you remember about that day 15 years ago? So I was a sophomore in college. I remember waking up and I don't know if it was a roommate or someone in the hall just was like, you have to come downstairs. We have to start watching TV. And it just started watching everything unfold live. And I was like total rule follower. So I still made my eight o'clock class, (laughs) still went. And my professor, I remember, taught just like it was a normal day. And then um, I just... Remember going back to that class the next time we had class, I think it was like two days later, and our professor was just so sympathetic and so sorry that he had not like stopped mm-hmm. like what um, Jake's teachers had done and like embraced the moment. He was like, I just thought it was like sensational news. I had no idea. How do you translate that into something teachable to students who may not have that gut reaction to maybe seeing images on TV or hearing about the stories because it, it's raw to the both of you. I've had one of my kids even say to me, like, remember, it's never going to be as real to us as it was to you, hmm. but we still want to know what's going on and we still want to know as much as we can. And um, I think by telling our stories, our personal stories, talking to their parents, hearing as many stories as they can, whether it be on paper or through talking to people, I think that helps make it real for them. The first year I taught 9-11 was also my first year teaching. I tried to teach it kind of the way it had felt to me that first year. And I think there was this very real disconnect. Um, I was teaching seventh grade at the time. My students were, I think, two years old when it had, when, when 9-11, 2001 had happened. So yeah. there was a, a real disconnect. And it Unfortunately, despite, you know, the best of intentions, I didn't really grapple with what that meant in the classroom until after those lessons had not been as impactful as I would have liked. So teaching it in in subsequent years as a history teacher, um, it has been a lot more about not just my story, but the personal narratives or real images um, of that event. And I think sort of accepting that for my students on some level, it was going to be closer to the past historical events we were talking about rather than a, a firsthand occurrence. But I think um, bridging the gap with with my experience, but then also having them either interview family members or those sorts of things kind of mm-hmm. after the lesson um, mm-hmm. helped to make that a little more concrete for them. 
as we mentioned, there's no state mandate on teaching 9-11 in schools. And Colorado is a local control state. Therefore, the state's Department of Education doesn't tell schools how to teach certain subjects. It gives more of a standard guideline on what kids more broadly need to know. Neither of the schools where you two teach have school-wide guidelines on this, but you develop your own lesson plan, uh, Jake, especially over, over the past several years. What made you decide to do that? The fact that it was such a, a pivotal moment for me, not just in terms of understanding history, but understanding the, the power of, of education in the classroom, I think really drove me to make that a part of, of what I was trying to do and using it as a way to talk about the world in which they live, because we would certainly all agree that the ramifications of 9-11 are still very, very much on the surface, even for the eighth graders I teach or the sixth graders mm-hmm. you teach. There's sort of two aspects to teaching this. There's this yeah. historical context, but then there's also this present day context, yes. right? Yeah. We had decided as a class or maybe I decided alone that the real purpose of it was just going to be to memorialize. Like, how are we going to take this forward. So maybe not the specific facts, maybe not knowing exactly what triggered it and what the outcomes were, but like lots of people lost their lives that day. And that's super important. And how are we going to memorialize that? So having that as the focus at the beginning kind of led what I did from there. Once I decided on that focus led me to what kind of things am I going to bring into the classroom? What kind of discussions are we going to have? And what are we going to do with this information? And it evolved year after year? or um, It was two years ago that I started. And then this year, I've just a su- very different group of kiddos. And I wasn't positive it was going to work in a way that was honorable. And so we're taking kind of a shortened approach. I do think what was powerful um, for me, and I ended up teaching it with two very different groups of students, but the same way my second and, and third years teaching um, 9-11 was really about how do people process loss and how, to, how does a traumatic event on a national or global level translate to an individual or to a community. Um, and that was how we approached 9-11 in my class and then how we spun it into conversations we were having you know, about everything from medieval Europe to you know the Arab Spring and subsequent conflicts that kind of have been a part of our, our kind of national conversation and understanding since then. So I do think that giving students a chance to to grapple with kind of these broader themes was powerful and definitely how I wanted to approach it in my classroom. How do you approach, let's say, the images, the videos that people are going to be seeing as, as 9-11 uh, you know, comes around, sixth grade, eighth grade students – is there a level that you have chosen through this curriculum of of showing them these images or, or, or is it more of a stepping away and just talking about the general themes of what happened? I felt strongly about I didn't want to show live footage. I don't know if it was because of my personal experiences of having that completely burned into my memory. And I felt like that was more of a family decision of whether or not their child was going to watch the the live images. Mm -hmm. So we did end up seeing real footage, but it was quite a ways into the unit where the students already had the background knowledge of what happened that day, heard some of the personal stories so that when they see these images, it's not just like, oh my gosh, but they're like, oh, that's what it was really like. So I kind of, it was later, it wasn't like the shock factor, it was more of a add to the understanding of the day. Is it a separate approach for you, Jake, because they're eighth grade students and maybe a little bit more mature? I do think there is a a pretty big gap between 11-year-olds and 14-year-olds. So I think there was some of that guiding it. 
And I think, like, when you look at our social studies standards, so much of it is learning how to analyze primary documents and not taking everything from a secondary source, that if we weren't to give at least some of those things, we wouldn't really be teaching the history aspect of it or the social studies aspect of Mm it. And so I think there's that, too. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with two Colorado educators working through how to teach the events of 9-11 to students who weren't alive in 2001. Jake Cousins teaches eighth grade at Strive Prep in northwest Denver. And Laura Inojos is a sixth grade teacher at Ralston Elementary in Golden. These students have grown up with the war on terror, uh, which wasn't a thing until after 9-11. How do you teach the cultural impact of 9-11 without instilling fear. For example, what if a student has never been in a plane before? How do you teach them about how this has impacted airport security without making them afraid of flying? I think spinning it in a, in a slightly different but connected direction. Um, the topic that was always the most resonant for my students and that they always had the most questions about were perceptions and, and stereotypes of the Muslim community and, and how that um, manifests itself in their daily lives. My school's predominantly Latino, um, but we do have a, a pretty sizable um, Muslim population amongst our students. And the ways in which those students felt they'd been treated, the ways in which students of, of any background noticed these different things in their daily lives or in campaign speeches or, or, or anywhere else, I think was something they were already very aware of. Um, and using that as our starting place and then tr- starting to trace that those origins backwards through contemporary inflection points like 9-11 all the way back through the Crusades, I think was a way that we approached kind of contemporary impacts. You're not the only ones creating curriculum for Colorado students around 9-11. The CEL, which stands for Counterterrorism Education Learning Lab, is a nonprofit organization in Denver, and we spoke with its assistant director, Jordan Clark. The museum has created eight lesson plans which directly address 9-11, and Clark told us that the plans are geared towards high school and college students and supplements a visit to the cell. And he adds the overall goal is to educate young people more broadly about terrorism and not just 9-11. There's always a closing portion of our tours that really tries to provide that positive message on what is it that we can be doing to preventing these things from happening again. What do you think about that? The teaching grade school kids about 9-11 could also give them tools to uh, maybe prevent terrorism in the future. I think as human beings, it's really easy to speak in terms of like of those people or these people or labeling things and putting them into boxes. And I think what's really important to me and what I hear this speaking to is the idea of if we can push students to conceptualize historical actors as individuals with agency the same way they are, that are shaped by situation and circumstance the same way we all are. Um, That helps, I think, in a lot of ways to, rather than treat history as something like, wow, isn't it horrible that that happened, um, instead as something that we can internalize and think about why conflicts arise between individuals or communities or nations. And in having those conversations, I think the hope would be long-term that students who leave the eighth grade, the seventh grade, the sixth grade with those skills are are better prepared to approach those those conversations when they're, you know, our world leaders. Laura, what questions do you think are going to come up when, when you when you teach this? So a lot of questions they want to know, how did it happen? Why did it happen? 
could it still happen? And um, I have to be honest, a lot of the questions they come up with, I can't answer for them. Hmm. I can give them some of my thoughts. I can direct them to talking to their families. I can help them do some searches as to um, get a better understanding what they're asking or some more information. But sometimes I can't answer their questions. And I think that's okay because it's about being a thinker. Well, then what kind of pushback uh, have you gotten from parents or or faculty? Um, The one piece of pushback I, I got back uh, or I received during my very first year um, was from a, a parent who very firmly believed that 9-11 was perpetrated by the U.S. government um, and felt that I hadn't fully included that in my in my lesson plan. Um, that said, like that parent approached it very responsibly. We had you know a couple of conversations about it and there was enough trust there as, as someone who knew their student very well that like there wasn't any lingering issues and I wouldn't want anyone to leave with the impression that like this was some belligerent individual like they were thoughtful we had a conversation and and that was that what is the role of parents then in teaching this to their children Um, why in a classroom setting is this important more so than just letting a parent tell their child exactly what happened in their own words sometimes as parents, I think we have a hard time knowing where to start or how to start the conversation with our students and we, our children. We want to, but um, having it start in the classroom with age-appropriate materials and um, peers to talk to, I think, helps parents then discuss it at home in a different way. And you're a parent, right, Laura? I am. Yeah. How do you approach a student when they have a question, can this happen again? Will this happen again? There's a balance to being honest with our students about like what we can't know as people, let alone teachers. Um, and also reinforcing to them that there are, you know, conscientious efforts being made to keep them safe, whether it's like as localized as our school or, or as broad as, you know, airport security. Yeah, I would say almost the exact same thing. We can't ever predict the future. So of course things that are bad are probably going to happen again. But we all learned from the experience and talking about the even just the airport security with kids. Those changes were made and things are different because of that. And so they should be safer. But no, we can't ever know for sure what's going to happen in the future. And I think there's power in talking to students about the the dangers of living your life in response to fear, regardless of if it's 9-11 or, or anything else. Um, but what it means to kind of have active agency in the decisions you make rather than um, being just a reactive person. Thanks to the both of you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Jake Cousins teaches eighth grade at Strive Prep in Denver, and Laura Inojos is a sixth grade teacher at Ralston Elementary in Golden. They spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. The 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks is Sunday. And we'd like to hear from other Colorado educators. How do you tackle the subject in the classroom? Email us, news at CPR.org. News at CPR.org. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters. When we come back, the superintendent of Denver Public Schools on his family's out-of-classroom learning experience. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Taking six months off work sounds dreamy, doesn't it? And the superintendent of Denver Public Schools got to do that. He spent that time in South America with his family. And when he got back to work over the summer, there was good news. Test scores are climbing in DPS, but still have a long ways to go. 
And Deton Bosberg, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. We're going to get to some of the big issues facing DPS in a bit. But first, what was the biggest revelation from your semester living in western Argentina, I think, near the Andes Mountains? We lived in Mendoza, a city in western Argentina, and had a wonderful time. So our kids, Nola, Ella, and Calvin are 16, 14, and 12. They all went to the local schools there. And it was just an amazing time for us as a family to learn together, to grow together, to all learn Spanish together, to be in a new country, to be in a new culture, and to share that learning and share those experiences uh, with each other. So we we just very much enjoyed that time to to be together and learn and grow as a family. Uh, Of all the spots on the planet, why that one? So we we very much wanted to go to a Spanish-speaking country. Uh, Personally, uh, we have over 30,000 kids in the Denver Public Schools who speak Spanish as their first language, and I very much wanted to learn Spanish to be able to speak with them directly and, more importantly, th- their parents. Um, and we also wanted to go to a place that had great access to the outdoors, and Mendoza's right at the foot uh, of the Andes Mountains, and it was a great opportunity to hike and bike and do all the great outdoor things we love to do here in Colorado. I wonder if your children's experiences in those Spanish-speaking schools gave you some insight into what it might be for... English language learners, whose primary language is Spanish, in DPS schools. Very much so. And it was something that we talked about every night uh, at the dinner table when they came home. And for my wife, Karen, and me, we'd actually met when we were both living and working in Taiwan. Uh, So we'd had the experience of living overseas and and learning uh, a second language, in this case, Chinese. I taught uh, English in school over there, so I had experience in teaching kids who were learning English. Uh, But I think for my own kids to go through that experience of being the new kid in the class, the kid who doesn't speak uh, the language uh, uh, to the degree that all the other kids speak in the class, was very thought-provoking, both for them and for us. Can you give me an example of a thought it provoked? Yeah, just what what it means in terms of of the acceptance of the other students in the class. And, And small gestures and big gestures mean a lot for kids who are coming in new. And I think they became so aware of just how important it was, um, the the atmosphere, the, the how, how their classmates reacted. And I think they thought a ton of, wow, what does this mean for me when I return to my school or my country and how I and my classmates treat newcomers uh, to our school, whether mm. they're from you know, a different country or, or from a different school, very, very thought-provoking for them about uh, how groups uh, uh, treat uh, new kids and, and, again, how gestures both big and small make a huge difference uh, to a new person in a class or a group. Those kind of uh, acts of kindness. I'm going to say that you, you didn't get paid while you were on sabbatical. Uh, is this the kind of opportunity you would want a teacher or principal in DPS to have. Absolutely. And this was when my wife, Karn, and I were married 20 years ago. We promised each other that if we were lucky enough to have kids, we really wanted to spend some time in their lives overseas because we think it's so important to have that opportunity to learn uh, a new language, to, to learn about a new culture. I think you learn often as much about your own culture and your own self when you live outside your country as you do about the culture you're living in. So and, I think and how it's a easy, valuable experience for, all, for anyone. How easy an experience would that be for a teacher or, or principal at DPS to do what you did? Yeah, so I think, again, if we have a principal now who's gone to Latin America on time off from, from Denver Public Schools and 
And I think we're a teacher or principal again. It's not paid, right? This is no. this is an unpaid leave, uh, but but we're a teacher or we're a principal to seek to take uh, unpaid leave to be with their family to to work or, or study overseas. It's something we'd very much welcome. And that's coming from the top at DPS. We're speaking with Tom Bosberg. He's the superintendent of one of Colorado's largest districts. I want to step back uh, now for um, schools across Colorado. Uh, lack of funding is obviously a huge issue. The state is near the bottom in terms of per-pupil spending, and lawmakers cut about $5 billion from public schools since the recession. If you could have more money, what is the first thing you'd spend it on, and, and why? Yeah, it's hard to say one, but I, but I think um, the overwhelming thing that we'd spend it on are making sure that, that kids are getting the personalized supports that they need. And many of our kids in Denver uh, come from circumstances where they don't have the supports uh, to the degree at home that more privileged students have, and to make sure that they're getting the personalized supports. Those could be academic supports or tutoring supports. Those could be social and emotional supports to help them uh, learn and grow in a social and emotional sense. But it's really the, the greater opportunity to individualize and personalize the supports that each of our kids need to grow and reach their full potential. And that is not a, a question necessarily of classroom size, but of uh, extracurricular support? Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's both. Okay. And clearly, the smaller classes are, uh, the more capability each teacher has to individualize and personalize their supports and helps, support and help for their students. But but it, but it's also a matter of, of cases where, for example, maybe having a second teacher in the classroom who can work with smaller groups. It's a question of tutoring opportunities for kids. It's an opportunity for counselors or uh, nurses or social workers to help with kids with, with, with particular difficulties. And again, if I had a second priority, it would be to be able to pay those professionals more to attract and keep the best educators uh, in the Denver public schools. But what I'm hearing from you is that you don't believe there are enough of those professionals and paraprofessionals at, in DPS right now. At, at all levels. All right. our, our class sizes, again, very much would like to have smaller, very much like to have greater ability for individualized supports. Some of those would come directly from teachers. Some of those might come from tutors. Some of those, again, would come from uh, folks like counselors or social workers to help uh, on the social and emotional side. I mentioned test scores in the introduction. DPS students at almost every grade level did better on standardized tests last year, and these scores just came out. You saw more growth than other districts in Colorado and in some similar-sized cities around the country, so good news there. Uh, but still, less than a third of students met or exceeded expectations in math. Th less than a third. I mean, uh, do you consider that success? Are you frustrated there's not more progress? Both. And I'm very grateful to the work of our teachers and our school leaders who work extraordinarily hard for the progress we've made. A decade ago, Denver saw less year-on-year -year student growth than any other major district in the state. However, in recent years, each year, Denver is showing more growth than any other major district. And that's true for our high-achieving kids, our middle-achieving kids, our low-achieving kids. They're all growing more each year than their peers around the state. And that's a great tribute, again, to the work of our teachers uh, and our school leaders. But at the same time, we're nowhere near where we need to be, which is our goal, is that every kid graduate from high school and graduate prepared uh, for college and career. And we have very significant gaps in reaching that goal, particularly uh, on the basis of race and income, right? Mm -hmm. our, our white middle-class kids are far closer to that, that goal 
than our, than our kids of color and our low-income kids. And I think that is the acute need in the Denver public schools, how we continue to raise the bar for all kids and focus on closing the gaps to provide opportunities, particularly for our kids of color and our low-income kids, because the gaps that we see in school today are then gaps that get perpetuated in our society in terms of the opportunities uh, of the people in our community. Uh, Tom Boesberg, I'd like to continue this discussion after a break. Um, So we'll continue with the superintendent of Denver Public Schools in just a moment on the question of school discipline. Denver has uh, taken some steps to making changes in that regard, and uh, they have earned some praise and some criticism back in a moment on CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are spending time with the superintendent of Denver Public Schools, Tom Boesberg. Denver's gotten national attention for changes to school discipline. About a decade ago, the district started cutting the number of -of out-of-school suspensions that it hands out in favor of something called restorative justice. Kids are asked to write about what they did wrong, for example, or there might be a mediation between two students who got in a fight instead of just sending them home. The fact is that kids who are suspended or expelled are more likely to fall behind, drop out of school, or even end up in prison. So Denver's had success, but there's evidence that students of color are still suspended at much higher rates than whites. A group called Padres y Jovenes Unidos helped push for these reforms in Denver schools. And I want to play a clip, Tom, from an organizer with that group, Daniel Kim. What we've seen in Denver and it's mirrored in Colorado, and it's mirrored in what we see in the data and research nationally, is that when schools start to be less punitive and more restorative with students, the first students who benefit from that are white students. He says in schools that have made this transition well, uh, away from suspensions, that is, they talk about the underlying issue of race. How do you think DPS can change the fact that kids of color are still getting suspended significantly more than white students? This is a trend I assume you're aware of. Very much so. And it's one of acute concern. I think the, the way to address that is to make sure we are addressing it directly. We are talking about issues of race, issues of bias, issues of preconception, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit. Again, we've made tremendous progress in this. We, we, we're down by over 75% in terms of out-of-school suspensions compared to where we were a decade ago. I don't think – and there's very clear connection between the fact, likewise, our dropout rates in Denver are down by over 60 percent. We're graduating, you know, 60 percent more kids than we were a decade ago. So all of that are signs of progress. But we do continue to see quite significant disparities in discipline rates between particular African-American kids – uh, and our white kids. And I think that's a matter of making sure that we're working uh, with our teachers and school leaders around their cultural understandings, their cultural responsiveness. It's important, right, very much that our, our schools be safe, that there be consequences uh, for actions, but to work very hard wherever possible where a kid uh, does something wrong, gets into an argument with another kid, maybe is disrespectful to a teacher. Are there ways, instead of just sending that kid home, say, go watch TV for three days, to say, what did you do wrong and what and how are you going to learn from this? How are you going to make whole the person uh, whom was wronged? You're talking in, in some respects about bias or anti-bias education for educators. Is is, there, is that formalized in some regard or are those just... Uh, unofficial conversations happening on campuses? Uh, Both. And so, for example, every one of our new educators 
uh, goes through learning around culturally responsive education. Um, what does it mean to make sure they're being thoughtful and knowledgeable about the cultures uh, of the students they serve? We, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about bias. Every person, whatever their race or ethnicity, has biases uh, of, of one sort or the other. And it's incredibly important that people both individually can recognize their own biases and work with their colleagues to address biases that they have that that disproportionately uh, affect our kids. So every teacher, every principal in DPS will or has gone through that? Uh, For the most part, yes. Some of the folks who've been uh, with us significantly longer may not have originally. Uh, we we have we encourage it strongly in all of our school leaders. That's a a key part of their learning. We really encourage and stress for our school leaders that they be very much values based leaders and lead from a, a real position of who they are and what their values are, and that they're willing to examine and, and challenge uh, their own values and biases and what that means for how we serve our kids. Have you watched one of these mediations? Oh, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, What's, I, what stands out about them? I, I think they're powerful. I think they're very, at, at their best, they're very deep and profound learning experiences where a kid comes away realizing what caused him or her to take uh, those actions and what the impact of those actions was on the people uh, who uh, who were harmed. And, and at their best, they're very powerful learning experiences. Tom Bosberg, tomorrow we're going to air a documentary from American Public Media about school discipline. It largely focuses on Denver, and it shares the story of a student who's benefited from the shift away from suspensions. It does, though, raise concerns from teachers. Some quit because they felt like their classrooms were out of control. Here's a snippet of the documentary, starting with the reporter Lori Stern. Even teachers who support the idea of restorative practices are frustrated sometimes. Andrea Rossin teaches 10th grade English at North High School. There's never enough time. And so you might want to have 20 conversations with 20 different kids. But when are you supposed to do that? Is it a resource challenge to implement this at every school and really make a change in how kids are disciplined? Um, Or do you think it's more about the difficulty of changing school culture? It's both. I think it starts with culture and mindset and a clear a view that we have around the importance of restorative justice, around the importance of kids staying in school and learning from their mistakes. But it also very much is a resource challenge. Earlier I spoke about the extraordinary importance of what additional resources could do in providing individualized supports for our kids. And some of those are very much academic, but some of those are around their social and emotional learning. Some of those are around having the opportunities to get uh, counseling, to get emotional Uh, and social supports to help them learn when they're causing harm to themselves and to others. But this goes back, I assume, to money and staffing. It it does. And Uh and again, we will absolutely do the best of what we have when, you know, we're on the ballot this fall in Denver for a mill levy, uh, a tax increase request to voters. And and one of the major parts of that is specifically resources for more individualized, personalized, social, emotional uh, supports for our students. Which would extend to discipline. Yeah, absolutely. It would allow for more restorative justice coordinators. It would allow for more training and opportunities for teachers to learn. And again, it would allow for kids to get the supports that they need. Less than a minute. You've been in this job seven years. That's about twice as long as most big city superintendents. You have a school board largely of people who support your agenda. What's the most important thing you want to do this school year? 
The, the number one thing we're focused on is how do we provide supports to our teachers to get the learning and the coaching and the feedback they need uh, in the extraordinarily challenging jobs they, they are doing. And as a real focus of ours is teacher leaders, that teacher leaders investing in teachers to take leadership roles in schools, to coach other teachers, to develop really strong teams of teachers, and stress teamwork. Because the jobs we have are too hard to do alone. And folk, when folks work well as a team, we see success. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Tom Bosberg, superintendent of Denver Public Schools. And again, that American public media documentary, it's called Spare the Rod, about school discipline airs tomorrow during Colorado Matters, so 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. Thanks for spending time with us. We are at Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.